This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The endorsements came one after another. Republican U.S. Senator Cory Gardner last week threw his support behind President Trump's re-election campaign next year. Then the president tweeted his thanks to Gardner, saying we will win in 2020 together. There's a lot at stake in Colorado's U.S. Senate race, and more Democrats are throwing in their hats. Let's get some analysis from Jennifer Duffy of the Cook Political Report. She's on the phone from Washington. Jennifer, welcome back to the program. Uh, Thank you for having me. Good morning. Cory Gardner did not endorse Trump in 2016 and has, in fact, tried to distance himself from the president on certain issues. What do you make of him endorsing Trump for 2020? Oh, I think it's... uh more about the inevitable than anything else. Uh, I don't expect that Trump is going to get a viable primary challenger. Um, Somebody may throw their hat in, but their chances of actually uh, winning the nomination are pretty slim. So um, I think that, you know, he, he one endorsed the inevitable, but two, uh, he, he, also sent a message to Trump supporters in the state um, that he was with the president because, as I think a lot of Republicans learned in 2018, is to be to be against the president is to pretty much earn yourself a primary opponent. Ah. Um, so he shut that door. He shut the door, perhaps, on himself facing a primary opponent. That is Cory Gardner exactly. in this Senate race. I wonder where you think, where would such a primary threat have come from? Well, it could come from a number of places, but I think that that, um, we've learned since 2010 and the rise of the Tea Party movement that um, primary opposition to to a candidate's right in a Republican primary has, has produced some pretty bad general election results for the party. So uh, there's, I think, a move, a move to just try and avoid these primaries altogether. What do you see as Cory Gardner's strengths and vulnerabilities going into 2020? Well, let's start with the vulnerabilities, because I think that they're pretty obvious. Um, I think Democrats are going to do what they can to attach Gardner to Trump at every opportunity. I mean, we saw this uh, play out um, in 2018 in a, in a couple of Senate races that Republicans ended up losing. So regardless of how supportive or, or not Gardner is of the president, he's going to, you know, they're going to use the president against him. Um, you know, that's another reason for the endorsement. There's no point in you know, not endorsing the president of your party if they're going to use it against you anyway. Um, So I think that that is, I think that that is the biggest weakness um, he has. The other, the other one is, is sort of right out of a democratic playbook. And they use this a lot against him, um, you know, in 2014 to, to not such a great effect, which is that he's out of step with the state. He's far too conservative uh, you know, what are Gardner's strengths? Um, you know, from a purely campaign point of view, uh, he's a good fundraiser. He's a terrific retail campaigner. I think he's a, he's one of these members who is very approachable. Um, he's outgoing. He's willing to, to talk about issues with voters. 
uh, in a way that some members have have, have gotten a little skittish about in, in recent years. Um, and he does have a very mixed record. He, he does tend to focus on Colorado. He breaks with the president on, on some things, not the least of which um, is immigration. Um, you know, his decision to, um, you know, it was a pair of, of useless votes for the entire Congress, but, um, you know, the votes that were taken before the government shutdown ended, he sided with the Democratic bill as well as the Republican bill, which was his message that you can't count on my vote here. Um, that was, I think, that was important. And and he also, you know, focuses on rural issues. Now, I know that those are certainly his roots. Um, but there are also issues that, that get uh, ignored often. Um, You're listening to Colorado by, Matters. By members. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and that's the voice of Jennifer Duffy of the Cook Political Reports. She has, for decades, followed Senate races, uh, offering independent political analysis. And we're looking at the U.S. Senate race in Colorado next year. I want to say that, as for the Democrats, about half a dozen candidates have declared, certainly some higher profile than others, like former state lawmaker, unsuccessful candidate for Governor Mike Johnston. Colorado Politics reports that mental health advocate and former Speaker of the House Andrew Romanoff will officially throw in his hat soon. And former Governor John Hickenlooper told us he's not ruling out a bid, even though his presidential aspirations are usually the big story, Jennifer. Uh, what, what's your sense of the Democratic field so far? Um, I think the Democratic field is very fluid right now. Um, just because you're first in doesn't mean that, uh, that, that you are the nominee. And what we haven't seen uh, weigh in here is um, the Democratic Senate leadership uh, Chuck Schumer is uh, well known for his involvement in uh, both recruiting and anointing um, candidates, and that certainly hasn't happened yet. Huh. I think Hickenlooper is a is probably the candidate he would most like to see run. Um, but you know, let's see whether or not he. Uh, gets into the presidential bit race first, and if he does, how long that lasts. I think we're looking at an extremely crowded Democratic field uh, for president. But, you know, there's time. It's worth remembering that Gardner didn't even get into this race before February of 2014, mm. after initially saying he would not run, and cleared the field. There had been some announced candidates, cleared the field, and and was able to win the seat. So I don't expect this to be resolved anytime soon. I mean, I think that both Mike Johnston and, and Andrew Romanoff have, um, you know, have to shake off some, some negative perceptions about them. I mean, Johnston entered the gubernatorial primary race with, with pretty high expectations only to finish fourth. I mean, I'm sorry, he finished third in a four way field. Yeah. You know, Romanoff lost a Senate primary. He lost a House race. He's got to convince uh, both donors and voters that this time is different. We have about 15 seconds, Jennifer. How important would you say the Colorado Senate race is 
to Republicans' hope to hold on to the Senate and to Democratic hopes to flip it? I think it's extremely important in both counts, but Democrats cannot take the majority without winning Colorado. Jennifer Duffy, senior editor at the Cook Political Report. She has spent the last 28 years as a nonpartisan political analyst. So still no concrete answer on whether former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper will run for president in 2020 or Senate. Here's what he told The Hill, though, just the other day. Well, we haven't made up our mind yet, but certainly it's a great chance to talk about some of the things we've done in Colorado, how we've been able to bring people together and solve problems. I'm leaning towards running. I think there's a lot of traction we've gotten. Speaking of the presidency there, here's something Hickenlooper is willing to answer. The question comes through Colorado Wonders. Charles Crayman of Denver asked if Hickenlooper is related to Bork Hickenlooper, who is an Iowa governor and U.S. Senate. Well, Charles, you're not the only one asking this. Listen to this exchange as we followed Hickenlooper in Iowa recently. You having a good time in Iowa? I sure am. Like ever Phil Maloney. Nice to see you. You know, we had an Iowa governor named Hickenlooper, too. Burke, Blake Moore Hickenlooper, you sure did. <laughs> yeah. See, we knew that name perfectly and could spell it. So, you know, my, my uh, great-grandfather was a guy named Andrew Hickenlooper. He was the second youngest general in the, in the, in the Union Army in the Civil War. Is that right? Yep, and, and his nephew came out here and was Burke Hickenlooper's father. So, I, so Burke Hickenlooper, I think, is, and I have to go back and get it on paper, I think he's my second cousin once removed. Well, he might counts. be third cousin, but I think he's second. It all counts. So there is indeed a connection. And Burke Hickenlooper was Iowa's lieutenant governor, then governor, then senator from the 1930s clear to the 1960s. And while we're on the topic, if you've ever wondered what Hickenlooper means, it's apparently Dutch and translates to the battle runner or messenger. So what other questions about Colorado nag at you? We can help you find the answers through Colorado Wonders. Submit your question at CPR.org. As more states legalize marijuana, researchers here are trying to understand the effects of the drug on driving. Much more, of course, is known about what alcohol does. CPR's Andrea Dukakis got behind the wheel of a driving simulator. It's part of a Colorado study that looks at how stoned drivers handle the road. I had expected a more clinical-like atmosphere when I showed up to check out the marijuana study. So this is an interesting house uh, to do a study in. Yes, it's a nondescript, uh, low-key place. The research, headed up by toxicologist Michael Kosnett at the CU School of Medicine, takes place in a small brick house on a side street in Aurora. Since people actually smoke marijuana on site for the study, it was less controversial to do it off campus. Kosnett and his team recruit three kinds of subjects. People who use it every day, people who use it once or twice a week, And then we have a group of people who don't use it at all. One of the biggest challenges with testing for marijuana levels is that when a person uses regularly, the drug builds up in the fatty tissue of their body. So even if a regular user hasn't used on a particular day and isn't high, they can still show elevated levels of THC in their blood. And there's evidence, too, that regular users become tolerant to the psychoactive effects. In Colorado, 5 nanograms per milliliter of THC in the blood establishes a permissible inference of being under the influence. 
but a person is able to show or rebut that to say that they're tolerant. We head to a room in the back of the house so I can try out the driving simulator. Every subject does this test without any drugs in their system first. If you can please have a seat here. Researcher Kyle Friedman helps get me oriented. Okay, so I have three screens in front of me, and I'm sitting in a seat um, with a wheel in front of it. So I'm going to feel like I'm really in a car right now. All right, so this is your standard steering wheel. Here are your shifters, so here's park, drive. There's also this iPad next to me that I have to look over to, and that sort of mimics how technology might distract me when I'm driving. I begin the simulated journey, knowing they're going to throw unexpected obstacles and distractions in my way. Okay, I'm driving along. Pretty road, lots of green, trees around me. What is the second app in the fourth row? Wikipedia. Ooh, yeah, Wikipedia. I had to look down at the iPad to find that app. Cars are coming toward me on the other side of the road. And for purposes of the study, I can't reveal what happens next. But things go very wrong. Okay. That's terrifying. Terrifying. So with no THC in my blood, I crash. The point is to see if subjects fare any differently maybe even worse, when they go smoke and are retested. We're going to go look at another room here. So this is uh, the room in which individuals who are consuming cannabis partake of it. We have a a comfortable recliner here. And the subjects bring their own cannabis. The instructions that we give people is you will now have a 15-minute period to smoke or vape an amount of cannabis flower that you most commonly use for the effect you most commonly desire. The subjects like myself who aren't going to partake skip the smoking part and just sit for 15 minutes in the room's comfy leather chair. Then they go back and try the simulator again. The point is to compare how they did before and after. Everyone's blood is tested before and after as well. I decide to skip a second go at the simulator. People who take part in the study do other before and after tests in a separate room. One tests the way a person's pupils and eyes move. You basically look into goggles and follow a green dot with your eyes. Oh, I just got large. We foresee... In the future, how a goggle like this could even be portable to the extent that it might even be able to be used at the roadside. So a police officer might be holding one of these goggles, put them on me if they stopped me in a car and thought I might be impaired. It's conceivable. Cosnet hopes to test 90 people as part of the study. I'm Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. And we have the researcher, Dr. Michael Cosnet, in the studio with us. Thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here, Ryan. At this point, what do researchers know about the effects of marijuana on driving? So when people are altered, what changes about their driving? Well, there have been some studies that have been done uh, in simulators using lower-strength cannabis, And generally, these studies have been done in people who have been occasional uh, users. There was a study done by some colleagues of ours at the University of Iowa, and they found that there were some effects on the way an individual operated an automobile. Like what? Um, Well, in in that particular study, they looked at, for example, a way in which individuals maintain themselves in the center of a lane when they drive. Everyone 
the wheel moves a little bit mm. one way or the other. And the extent and the variation in which a person holds the center of the road is actually a well-established marker of uh, certain aspects of intoxication, particularly with ethanol or alcohol. Um, so they also did that study on uh, occasional users, and they found that there was some uh, deterioration in their ability but to maintain the light. But we're talking about centimeters or you know inches as opposed to not people who are widely veering. Anything There's, else? Well, there was another observation um, that suggested that the uh, degree to which people uh, drive over the speed limit is reduced among the cannabis users. That they actually go slower. That they tended to go slower. And there's been a couple of studies now, uh, that you, have shown that. Now, you could hear this, right, and say, okay, marijuana slows you down and it has a slight but not important effect on maintaining a lane. And you could conclude, I have no problem driving high. Well, you know, the issue about driving is more than just the mundane things of getting in the car, driving down the road, seeing a, 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 a place where you want to turn and turning. You know, for most of driving, it's fairly routine. But there are those instances which we all appreciate. And they may only happen to us once every few months, maybe once a year, where there was a close call, where someone cut in front of us or we something unexpected happened and we had to make an emergency response. It's those type of situations where you have to actually evaluate what's in front of you and take uh, stock of all the different options and decide what's the most appropriate response. It and sounds like that's partly what you're studying is how do people react to those almost emergent situations. Exactly. And in fact, one of the things that's different and innovative about our investigation is that we're posing those types of scenarios to individuals. And they're all different and it's hard to predict when a person's in there what's going to happen. But it does uh, not only measure the the routine aspects of driving, but it measures uh, people's responses to unexpected events. There is this critical question about the everyday marijuana users developing a tolerance and perhaps uh, being able to deal as a driver better than those who use it infrequently and might get a bump the day they use it. What, what do we know about that? Well, it is known that people develop a tolerance to the psychoactive effects of cannabis when they use it on a regular basis. And there is evidence of tolerance actually in experimental studies on animals as well as on people. Would it, tolerance translate to safe driving though? Um, Possibly, but we're not sure. And that's mm. one of the key questions um, that we're uh, going to be evaluating in our study. We specific, you know, one of the issues, for example, in, in driving is the level of cannabis or the amount of cannabis that a person uses, how that impacts them. And there are some people, for example, who smoke cannabis regularly, who have uh, elevated levels long after the psychoactive effects. You know, Colorado has a permissible inference of five nanograms per milliliter. There are some people who use it every day who, when they wake up in the morning after not having used cannabis overnight, may have a level higher than that. And they're not acutely intoxicated. Mm. So the question really came up about how an individual who uses it on a regular basis, and these include, for example, medical marijuana users who use it for other reasons, uh, how, how can their driving be affected? You know, there are many drugs 
not just cannabis, where people become tolerant. Well, gosh, alcohol. Alcohol is is one of them, although it's uh, clearly at certain levels of consumption are associated with adverse effects on driving. But, you know, people take uh, opioid drugs, analgesics. People can take Benadryl and certain things that in some cases would make some people rather sleepy. In other people, it doesn't affect them because they're used to it. So the idea of drug tolerance uh, to psychoactive or central nervous system effects occurring is not unique to cannabis. To cannabis. Can you say if driving high is safer than driving drunk? Well, that's one. We're not going to directly look at that in this study. And, and you know, clearly by um, the numbers of fatalities and accidents, more uh, there's more of an implication of ethanol uh, alcohol use than there is cannabis. But um, there's also indications that uh, cannabis can uh, be associated with an increased risk of being in a crash from epidemiological studies. Um, one of the things we're really trying to look at is the nexus between the extent to which a person uses it and what are the levels in the blood. And this is why you've chosen folks who use every day, people who use infrequently, and those who don't use at all. We have uh, just about a minute left. I am fascinated by the idea of doing an eye test to check for marijuana impairment. Uh, we heard from Andrea the idea of uh, seeing what your pupils are doing, how your eyes move. Yes, and, and it's most people are probably familiar with the fact that part of a roadside tests that police often do when they uh, engage someone in a standard field sobriety test is to um, uh, shine a light in their eyes and also ask the individual to follow the policeman's finger as it goes back and forward. There have been some uh, studies that have suggested that there are certain features of the way a pupil constricts and react to light or the extent to which uh, the eyes can converge on an object that may be impaired by cannabis. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Dr. Michael Kosnett is a medical toxicologist at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. He researches cannabis and driving, funded by the State Public Health Department. In Colorado, state lawmakers do something unique, something legislators in Congress do not do. So could it spell the difference between government's efficiency and inefficiency, especially in light of the recent shutdown? That's the question posed in the latest episode of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Here's Purplish host Sam Brash. Hey, uh, it's Sam. I'm talking to you from the back of a committee hearing at the state capitol. I won't lie, these things can be uh, really boring. But there's something I can count on as a reporter. In this state, lawmakers get a limited number of bills, and each one gets at least one hearing and a vote. And House Bill 1031 passes uh, on a vote of 11 to 0. All right. Moving on, last but certainly not least is... This season of Purplish, we're going to focus in on the Colorado Capitol, how it works and who it serves. But this episode, we're also going to look east to Washington, D.C. Because there's something that struck me in the years I've spent sitting in hearing after hearing after hearing at the state legislature. It just seems like it works a whole lot better than Congress. And I think there's some clear reasons why. Reasons that can maybe help point the way to a fix. 
because, I mean, seriously, it needs one. This is day 22 of the partial government shutdown, now the longest in U.S. history. 80,000 federal employees are on temporary layoffs. 420,000 are working without President pay. President Trump and congressional Democrats remain locked in a dispute over border wall funding. Most coverage of the shutdown focused on negotiations over Trump's border wall. But here's what I noticed. For weeks, lawmakers, especially in the Senate, weren't really arguing about how to reopen the government. Because the bills to do that, they weren't even coming up for votes. I urge my friend Leader McConnell to allow a vote on the House-passed legislation to reopen the government. Leader McConnell refuses to let the Senate vote on these bipartisan bills. And I'll bet you it would pass with a veto-proof majority. Why? Because... Everybody's constituents in this place would say, are you out of your mind? Congressional leadership has almost complete control over what happens to bills once they're introduced. Lawmakers could go on CNN, they could make angry floor speeches. But for the most part, big fights like the shutdown, they hinge on just a few people. Pelosi, Schumer, McConnell, and the president. We want to do the same thing we did last year, this year. That's our proposal. If it's good then, it's good now, and it won't shut down the government. Chuck, we can build a but much bigger section let's, let's with debate, more money. Let's debate in okay. private, okay? Yeah, let's debate in private. Okay. The reason is something that we in the press don't love to talk about. Parliamentary procedure. Rules are why bills in Congress are often dead on arrival, even when they could possibly pass. Rules help explain the tiny negotiating table that shuts out almost all lawmakers. It's why some want Congress to adopt something like what already exists in Colorado, a requirement that every bill gets a hearing and a vote. They think more votes could increase accountability and encourage compromise. But that's a lot easier said than done. For Colorado, getting that rule took a popular revolt from voters. How that happened here and what happened afterwards shows there probably isn't a single answer for a place as seriously messed up as Congress. But hey, Colorado may contain a place to start. Okay, so turn back the clock about 30 years, and you'll find the Colorado legislature worked almost exactly like Congress. Back then, legislative leaders had far more power to snuff out ideas without any official debate. And that really bothered this guy. So why don't you just start by introducing yourself? Well, um, my name's Wayne Knox. I'm 90 years old now. He's since turned 91. And I served in the uh, legislature for 32 years. Uh, 16 terms, and I think that's a record in the House in terms of length. It is a record. Knox worked as a Democratic representative from Denver, and he served at the State House longer than anyone has and probably ever will. We have term limits now, which I think are bad, so you can't do it anymore. I met Knox at his retirement home in Denver. Pictures from his career cover the walls, posters his family made for his many birthdays. He still looks a lot like himself as a younger man. Thick mustache, big round glasses. For most of his time in office, Republicans controlled the House. So Knox spent a lot of time in the minority. So a lot of my history is being the true dissenter, uh, pointing out what's wrong with bills and things like that. And here's what would really bug Knox. He would write a bill, 
give it to the speaker who'd assign it to a committee. But then the committee chair had absolute power in the committee. The uh, chairs actually had uh, the bills, the physical bills, and he could put it in his desk and just forget about it. Walk me through that one more time. So the committee chair would literally take the bill and put it in the Yes, yes, literally, literally. You submit it, it goes to a committee, and that's the last that's ever heard of it. There are stories that these committee chairs had desks overflowing with Democratic bills. It's a move known as the pocket veto. A committee chair kills a bill just by refusing to schedule it for a hearing. And this practice didn't just piss off Knox. You know, lots of groups had been victims of non-action, legislation that they supported, that had been introduced, had not been acted on. So that kind of really led to the effort by folks in a number of organizations. And they joined him to draft a solution called the Gavel Amendment. Gavel was an acronym standing for give a vote to every legislator. Pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. Gavel like the little wooden hammers lawmakers use to start and end hearings. Pretty clever, right? Gavel did a couple of things. It said lawmakers had to hear legislation before committing their votes, and it ended the power of leaders to block bills from the get-go. Knox tried to pass Gavel through the legislature. Unsurprisingly, it failed, so he and his supporters gathered signatures to put it on the ballot. And in the fall of 1988... Uh, Things worked out for us, and in the general election, we passed Gavel by a significant margin... 44 points to be exact. That moment remains unique in U.S. history. No other state has voted to weaken the power of a majority party to control the legislative agenda. And Knox thinks it worked. Well, yeah, certainly everything got voted on in committee. And uh, I think I had a vote on things I wouldn't have had a vote on before. And that might sound small, but because all bills at least went before a committee, he says lawmakers had more chances to debate policies, more chances to modify their ideas, more chances to find compromise. Now, when he watches the news from Washington, he sees the same problems he sought to solve 30 years ago. I think the United States Congress could use a gavel amendment. There are a few people who've been to Congress and agree. I don't know. Something I'm always curious about. Do you, do you have pets as a congressperson? No, I don't. You don't? Would no, you I want one? That. Well, um, now I do. I don't even have a plant yet. This is former Republican Congressman Mike Kaufman. He represented Aurora and other Denver suburbs for years, but lost his race last November. And he's doing exactly what I would do if I ever lost my job. He's thinking of getting a dog. Oh, I think, you know, I like mixed breed dogs. Uh, yeah. It's, it's kind too. of like a shepherd mix of some kind. Anyway, Kaufman served in the state legislature before being elected to Congress. He's not somebody who's studied the differences between these institutions. He's lived them. And he thinks Congress is long overdue for something like gavel. It would be great. What it does by opening the process, you just, you're going to have bipartisanship and you're going to have bipartisan compromises. Compromise on issues like immigration. For Kaufman in particular, that meant DACA, the program that gives limited protections to immigrants brought to the U.S. as kids. During his last term, he wanted to make those protections permanent, but he couldn't get around his own party's leaders. 
I mean, myself, as a Republican, when it came to an issue with, say, like DACA, I felt out of step with Republican leadership, and that was out of step with my district. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how do I articulate as a Republican what was in the best interest of my district in a closed process that centralized power at the very top? Like, because on a basic level, you feel like you're sent there to do a job, which is to represent your constituents. Right. And... Because you can't do it. (laughs) I mean, in that sense, you just can't do it. I just think you get better policy, better outcomes, more representative government by opening up the process. And I think Gavel did that in a large part for the state of Colorado. And Washington, D.C. still needs to go further in that direction. Kaufman and Knox, the old lawmaker from earlier, see the same basic problem with Congress. It's not so much the people, it's a defective process, one that funnels power to party leaders and limits debate for everyone else. And the solution, it's right here, in the beautiful rules governing the airy, open chambers of the Colorado State Capitol. Right? (laughs) Seriously, Sam, you have been here long enough. You should know how this place works by now. This episode, we're talking about power. The power to get ideas in front of lawmakers and just maybe pass policies that change people's lives. Colorado's capital is not like the federal Congress. Here, voters in 1988 shifted power away from party leaders and put it in the hands of individual lawmakers by passing this thing called the Gavel Amendment. Many think something like it could break up partisan gridlock in Washington, D.C. What Colorado did remains a unique experiment in U.S. government. And you know who loves experiments? Political scientists. Well, I think what was what was great was that there was really no other changes taking place uh, at the same time. So we could really isolate the effect of this. This is Vlad Kogan, associate professor of political science at Ohio State University, and I study um, state and local politics. And 10 years ago, he wrote an article about Gavel with another political scientist. I'm Mike Bender. I'm an associate professor at the University of North Florida. And what got these guys really excited about Gavel is something only professional political nerds would ever notice. The amendment passed on an off election year. The vast majority of the legislators were consistent. The speakership was consistent. The the governor was consistent. All the big political apparatuses were the same. That meant they could pretty much put the arguments for Gavel to the test. These guys wanted to know, by allowing a vote on every bill, did lawmakers get more chances to be independent from party leaders? Did they pass more moderate policies? And they found, yeah, that happened. The majority party lost some votes. And there was a lot of, not a lot, but there was certainly some more movement toward moderate policies where some moderate Republicans and a bulk of Democrats would vote on issues. And they also think they can say why. Before Gavel, party leaders often blocked bills so vulnerable lawmakers wouldn't have to face votes on tough issues. Afterwards, those bills couldn't be quietly forgotten about. They had to get at least one vote. Now members have to go on the record. So it really changes politics in a fundamental way. Gavel worked almost like a political x-ray. As more lawmakers voted on more issues, the public could see the cracks and fissures within a political party. And these poli-sci guys think that's basically a good thing. 
one of the big problems in state legislatures especially is that at the state level, really democracy doesn't work very well. When we look at public opinion on issues and we look at the positions that are actually enacted, the public policies, the level of congruence is very, very low. And so I think anything that um, that creates more accountability, that makes it more visible, that allows voters to assign credit and blame for the policies that they see, I think that's going to improve democracy. Okay, cool. All right, guys, I think we're good. All right. Thanks, Sam. Take care. Okay, quick recap on all this. By bringing up every bill for a debate, voters could see where their state representatives or senators stood on a wider range of issues. And that actually changed their votes sometimes, leading to more moderate policies. But remember when I said that power doesn't die, it just adapts? Here's how that happens almost every day at the Colorado Capitol. Imagine for a second that you are the Speaker of the Colorado House of Representatives. First of all, congratulations. Most afternoons, while everybody else is off doing other stuff, you have to go to the House floor with all the bills submitted that day. The House will come back to order. Introduction of bills. You walk up to the podium and a clerk would read a summary of each bill. 1012 Barcelona, Inspector Valdez, also in appeals concerning the flexibility of the Department of Personnel. And yeah, this is like the world's most boring auction. Executed pursuant to Senate Bill 17-267. And then you have to decide, where should it go? Which committee? For most bills, it would be obvious. Highway funding bills go to the Committee on Transportation. Is referred to the Committee on Transportation and Local Healthcare bills to the Committee on Public Healthcare and Human Services. Is assigned to the Committee on Public Healthcare and Human Services. But what if you came across a bill that you knew was meant to embarrass vulnerable lawmakers on the proper committee? You might want to send it somewhere where it could vanish without any political damage. A place where bills go to die. A legislative slaughterhouse with trusted executioners. House Bill 1022 is referred to the Committee on State, Veterans, and Military Affairs. The Committee on State, Veterans, and Military Affairs. Its formal role is to hear bills on elections and military issues. And it does. But to Capitol Insiders, each panel in the House and Senate goes by a much more menacing name. The Kill Committee. The Kill Committee. No, that motion fails on a 3 to 6 vote. Senate Bill 40 fails. That motion fails on a 3 to 6 vote. Senate Bill 58 fails. Seeing no objection, the bill is postponed indefinitely. Kill committees are part of life under the Golden Dome. I mean, if you ask the lawmakers who sit on them, you'll get a stock answer. Every bill gets, quote, a full and fair hearing. But some cop to it. Mark Ferrandino served as the Democratic House Speaker from 2012 to 2014. During his tenure, he stacked state affairs with lawmakers he could trust and who weren't at risk of losing re-election. State affairs was known as the committee where you had safer members from both parties who would be assigned to it and be able to take the tough votes on difficult political situations. Ferrandino remembers one example. In 2013, Republicans pushed for Jessica's Law, which would have set strict mandatory sentences for sex offenders. They claimed it would deter crimes against kids, but Ferrandino says Colorado already had strict laws, and he suspected a different motive. They want all of our members on record so they can do a mailer against it. We'll make sure it doesn't get into a committee where people who are in tough situations in elections are going to have to vote on something that is not really about policy. It's really about politics. 
So he dispatched it to the kill committee. And this is not just a Democratic practice. Ray Scott, a Republican from Grand Junction, chaired the Senate State Affairs Committee when his party controlled that chamber. There's a group of legislators, and that's probably all of us, quite frankly, that will run uh, particular bills that are not designed to really accomplish much but make a political statement. I think it's fair to say that there are committees that are designed to take care of the political statements. That's pretty much what we do, a lot of. Seeing kill committees in action made me doubt the power of gavel. Each party appoints its safest members to take the tough votes, and they usually vote the way leadership wants them to. Those in more vulnerable districts don't have to worry about it. On the other hand, this is politics. Of course lawmakers run messaging bills to mess with their opposition. And of course they run highly partisan bills that don't stand a chance, but help keep their base happy. There should probably be some way to block those bills so they don't eat up everybody's time. It made me really unsure if something like gavel would actually help Congress. So I went to somebody who's been at the state house a lot longer than I have. So, like, when did you uh, start actually covering the state capitol? I think my first session was 2007. Whoa. Okay. So it's act- actually is like a dozen years, like 12 years. Yeah. It's wow. It's been a while. <laughs> this is Benta Berkland, CPR's public affairs reporter. And I'm guessing you've seen a lot of bills uh, die in kill committees. Yes. Countless bills easily, frequently. Right. And that means legislative leaders still have this really powerful tool to shoot down bills and by doing so, protect a few of their lawmakers from taking tough votes. I mean, does that mean that that gavel actually doesn't work that well, that it that it doesn't do what it was intended to do? Well, if you are a real fan of transparency. I am a real fan of transparency. <laughs> You know, an even stronger policy might be to put every bill to a full floor vote. Right. That way, everyone votes on everything. The problem with that is committees serve a purpose. You know, they're supposed to be places where lawmakers refine legislation, make changes, bring up concerns from their district. Also, if lawmakers have expertise in something like agriculture, water law, health care, anything, that's where this expertise comes into play. Okay. uh, Yeah, right. So like committees exist kind of for a reason. And, you know, it's worth noting that committee hearings sometimes can move into the the realm of theater. But that that could be useful, too. What do you mean? What's good about political theater? Okay, so we know one bill is going to come up this year that would end the statewide ban on rent control. Which is something that I know a lot of Democrats don't don't like that idea. They don't want that bill to pass when it comes up. Sure. And if leadership doesn't like it or thinks it could be used in some way to to paint them negatively with voters, they'll have a lot of committees that could probably defeat it. But even then, it's an idea that will have to be discussed, maybe at length, in public. Senator Julie Gonzalez is the Democrat from Denver who plans to introduce that measure. As she sees it, she still gets a chance to make an argument on behalf of her constituents. When I introduce any piece of legislation, whether or not that is regarded to be controversial, it is because that is what community is asking me to do because their lived experiences demonstrate that they need a change in the law. But I wonder if that matters. I mean, do these committee hearings ever change anyone's mind or or are they just a chance for somebody like Gonzalez to, to make a point? I think both. I've definitely seen people change their minds unexpectedly. And then also you are making a point. But as Democratic Majority Leader Alec Garnett says, even if something doesn't pass at the Capitol one year, 
perseverance can eventually pay off. You are bringing attention to the issue. In the past, you know, Representative Wellington Webb brought a civil unions bill in the early 80s in a Republican-controlled legislature that clearly didn't have a chance of passing, but I think elevated an issue that is the power of allowing each member to do what they think is right. So just to bring this back to where we started this episode, it sounds like you think something like gavel would be good for Congress. It'd be good for lawmakers to be able to set up these committee hearings about different ideas that they think are important. You know, I I really don't know. (laughs) Why? Why don't you think it'd be a good thing? Well, first, practically, it could never happen. There's no ballot initiatives at the national level. And let's say Congress passed a rule on its own. What are the chances legislative leaders would like to give up power? I mean, that's not going to happen. And then even if by some miracle it did pass, the only way gavel works here in Colorado is because we have bill limits. Yeah, that's something that we haven't actually talked about yet. You know, every bill gets a hearing, but that only works in Colorado because lawmakers have have these hard caps on how many bills they can bring up in a session. Yeah, and Congress doesn't have bill limits. They can run as many bills as they want. And they're probably not going to want to give up that right. If every single bill did get a hearing, just think how quickly the whole system could clog up and then there'd be partisan gridlock, gotcha bills, base-pleasing messaging bills. I don't think anyone would think that's an improvement. Okay, but let's say like it could happen that, that Congress passes something like gavel into its rules and limits how many bills each member can introduce. Something like that you don't think would be would be good for Congress? I still am undecided because we see just how high the stakes are in Congress. Yeah. Committee hearings turn into national blockbuster events, and it's easy for it to veer off in, away from substantive policy. Playing partisan politics, a chance to try to get on Fox News or MSNBC, help your reelection, or set the national stage for higher office. And I think in the cases where Gavel has worked in Colorado, it's been those times when committees were used to discuss policy. And the media covered those hearings from that policy point of view. In Congress, and for the reporters who cover Congress, it's often about the drama. Something like Gavel could just be another way to serve it up, and then it may make it harder for them to pass other substantive policies that they want to compromise on. Right. Uh, so <laughs> we're kind of ending on you know this down note, and this podcast is kind of supposed to be about democracy and <laughs> solutions for democracy. So do you have anything that's kind of a little more uh, Sorry, upbeat? I feel bad now, but, um, you know, What I think is that changing the rules in Congress would just be one part of any solution to try to break that gridlock. First, people have to believe in and follow the spirit of a rule like Gavel. I think Congress would have a lot of work to do on that front. Yeah. Okay. Well, Benta, um, thanks so much. Thank you, Sam. It's always fun. Sam Brash. And Purplish, the political podcast from CPR News. You also heard our public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland. You can subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. And you can hear the episodes each month through the legislative session here on Colorado Matters. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Moore. This is CPR News. <laughs>